I would like to send someone over to get in front of this election. Who? We have a few officers who've worked Iran. One has knock time in engineering covers. You'll have to go in non-official. But there's a concern. Because? It's my son, and it's complicated. In what way? Well, in one way. He records folk music under an assumed name because he says it helps him with his feelings, for example. That's one way. Really? The songs, oh, they're pretty good. I mean, I'm his dad, so maybe I'm biased, but they're pretty good. But they're becoming more honest, which is probably a good thing for folk singers in general, but not a good thing if you're one who works in intelligence. Welcome, everyone, to Macmillan Men. This is the podcast where we talk about the Amazon television show Patriot. My name's Luke Burbank. I'll be co-hosting this along with my good friend, Andrew Walsh. I'm in the Bellingham region of Washington State. He's down there in Seattle in the Roosevelt neighborhood. Hello, my friend. Spoken like a true Macmillan man. Hello, Luke. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Just even the saying the words Macmillan Men sends my brain into a, a, a sort of journey of thinking about the specific terminology of piping <laughs> and nut flanges and the like, which is one of the many things about the show Patriot that we are going to explore over the next, I don't even know how many episodes there will be. I'm not sure how many episodes of Patriot there were. Uh, of course, in classic fashion for us, because we also do a show, by the way, called TBTL, if you haven't heard of it, uh, where we, we tend to focus on esoterica. We, we basically got this show off the ground, this podcast about Patriot. We got this off the ground at about the same time that it was announced there will not be a third season of Patriot. Right. Well, our other show is called Too Beautiful to Live. And honestly, I think that applies to Patriot, like very much so. Patriot is the... I haven't been obsessed. I haven't been obsessed with a show like this. I don't know. Even maybe ever the way this show totally gripped me. So of course it only had two seasons and ended on a cliffhanger. Of course it was oh, too beautiful no. to live. I haven't seen the end of the show yet, so uh, I'll be experiencing this uh, sort of along with the listeners because Andrew, you've watched the whole thing, and it's how many episodes between both seasons? I don't know, 20 or something? Yeah, I'm going to guess at 20, maybe 10, uh, 10 eps a season, but I don't know off the top of my head. So we're going to go through each week, and we're going to talk about the episode that we just watched, and we're working our way chronologically. Again, Andrew's seen the whole thing. I've only seen through season one, but I'm going back now and rewatching it, which I did last night, and I was just absolutely delighted once again by this show. Um, sometimes you watch something a couple times, and you're kind of bored. This thing is so dense and layered and there's so many little references and plot points that it really does bear repeated watching um so first of all if you are uh you know just hearing about the show patriot for the first time uh let me explain i think i found out about this show through a passing reference in a tweet from dan Harmon. dan Harmon, the creator of community and Rick and Morty and a bunch of other stuff. I was I don't even follow him on Twitter, Andrew, but I was just watching or I was just looking at a tweet of his for some reason. 
I think it was I had just heard of This American Life where Dan Harmon was prominently featured, kind of taking responsibility for having been a a creep. And it kind of got me on a Dan Harmon uh, sort of jag. And then I was reading his Twitter and then he mentions in passing something about how great this show Patriot is. And for whatever reason, I thought, okay, I'll check this out. There are thousands, if not millions, of television shows begging for my attention on various streaming platforms. And I I pay attention to almost none of them. But for whatever reason, this one mention in this one tweet was like, okay. And I because, first of all, let me just say the name Patriot is not something that I typically find appealing. And even the artwork for the show did not indicate to me just how interesting and not a Kiefer Sutherland joint it, this show is. I can I you know? can I say I literally I mean you discovered the show first. You came in hot. You said you got to watch. You got to watch it. I think after a week of you being obsessed, then then I started to watch it. I became obsessed, uh, as did you know my partner Genevieve. And then I mean there have been so many times. One time I'm thinking of where we specifically said to two people who love TV and movies, we were just jawing about all this stuff we're watching. We said you got to watch. Pay, you got to watch this this new show. Amazon Prime. It wasn't even new, but you got to watch this show on Amazon Prime. It's new to us. We're obsessing over it. It's so good. They're like, what's it called? We said Patriot. They said, mm, that doesn't sound like it's for us. I'm like, dude, like, just ah, like again, to draw the parallels to our, to our podcast, like I feel like Amazon did nothing to promote this. It's almost like they tried to anti-promote this. Like they gave it a name that yeah. doesn't capture its beauty. They, as far as I know, had almost zero budget for letting the world know that this thing existed. It just lives on the Amazon Prime page. And if you happen to know about it, you'll land on it. And it's not a low budget show. No. I mean, they, shoot in, they shoot in Europe. It's beautifully shot. Uh, the the acting is great. The writing is unbelievable. I mean, it is a prestige. And I don't say that pejoratively. It is a to me, it is a piece of prestige television that should be talked about uh, with all the greats. And the fact that there was almost no buzz around it that I found it through a Dan Harmon tweet was. I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of like I felt like I saw the cool band when they you know were opening for someone else. So I guess on some level, I like this. Uh, but on just a like, is the world a fair place or not? I find it just absolutely unfair mm-hmm. that that this is not like this is not considered one of the best TV shows to be made in the last five or ten years because I would put it up with literally anything else uh, that I've seen. And I'll mention that uh, the the creator Stephen Conrad has a new show out, a uh, relatively new show on Epics. It's called Perpetual Grace Unlimited, which. I'm about four episodes in, and it is also incredible. So maybe when we're done with our our series on Patriot, maybe we can bump over. We'll just become the official chroniclers of Stephen Conrad's creative output. Yeah, when he could say um, some sort of court order for us to stay away from him and no longer mm-hmm. produce any podcasts about his work, that's when we've gone too far. Is there any crossover well, listen, the at thing all? Is, is there does any... it say cease and desist right. and don't podcast? <laughs> right. Or does it say cease and desist? Thank you. Um, Perpetual Grace. I mean, I assume. Do you see any DNA? I've never seen that show. Yes. Do you see any sure. DNA between the two shows? Yeah, absolutely. There are actors that are in both shows, oh. and uh, and 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 they're just like okay. And this was actually a good way for me to talk about Patriot and why it just knocked me over when I started watching it. There's something about the writing. And I believe Stephen Conrad writes, if not all of the episodes, a lot of them. And it's very clear that he is the, the 
sort of creative force behind what the vibe of these shows is going to be. Um, there is a way that people talk on Patriot and the way that the characters comport themselves that I find utterly fascinating. What I don't like in a show – let's just imagine that this show, Patriot, was being made by CBS and it was starring – or it was being made by Fox – I said a Kiefer Sutherland joint earlier because Patriot sounds like a show where Kiefer Sutherland plays a CIA agent who has to go rogue to stop a nuclear attack. This, by the way, is a, a show about a CIA, a CIA agent who has to go rogue to try to stop a nuclear attack. So it's, it's in one way, it's kind of like one of those shows, but it bears no resemblance to the more like, I guess, mainstream version of this kind of uh, storytelling. Like what I love about this show is that – well, I'll say is what I wouldn't love about the Fox version of this show would be that the everyone would be the archetypal version of themselves. The, the CIA agent would be the most badass of CIA agents. The CIA boss who's angry because his agent is going rogue would be the most angry of CIA supervisors. The uh, attractive – female cohort would be the most attractive and no nonsense of female cohorts everybody is just i hate shows where everybody is the most of what that character is and somehow in patriot nobody is what i expect them to be based on what the character is and i it keeps me endlessly fascinated yeah, I mean, the main character in this, John, the, the main spy, for lack of a better word, it's just so funny to use these words thinking that some people may be hearing us without having watched it because you're just picturing whatever you've seen in action movies before. And it's just the right. opposite of it. John is yeah. an incredibly – I mean, he's a very – we will learn as the series goes on that he is very skilled at what he does. He's not a bumbler at all. He's surrounded by bumblers and bubble, bumbling. Um, but he's very skilled, but he is incredibly soft-spoken to a fault at times. He is incredibly introspective. As you heard in the opening tape, he deals with his emotions by singing very literal folk songs. We'll get to that maybe more in a little bit. Um, it's almost like everybody is painfully the opposite of what they would be in a more cliche show. But it's also not, but, it's funny, but it's not like a parody. It's not a parody or broad in any way. It's very thoughtful. And the characters have so much dimension. Yes, because like you said, they're the opposite of what you expect. And they are, but that can be its own trope. Mm -hmm. And they're somehow not like, okay, talking about the John Tavner character played by Michael Dornan, um, uh, who, A.K.A. John Lakeman, which is his name when he's sort of undercover. Uh, his character is is not what you expect from a CIA agent or a knock, but it's also like he still is good at kicking people's ass if he has to. He still has real skills. So it's what I find great about this show is that is that it's it's somehow just it managed to inhabit it manages to inhabit this space where. It both it, – it scratches the itch you have to watch kind of like a, a show that's about intrigue and about spycraft and stuff. It scratches that itch, but in a way that is so, like you said, so much more nuanced and, and there are so many more dimensions to it. It's sort of like – to me it feels like – and again, this sounds reductive, but it's sort of like if Wes Anderson and David Lynch – and whoever made Mission Impossible 5 Fallout, if they all got together and made something and it was the best elements of all those things, I feel like it would be this. Yeah, I was going to say it's almost like a, a, a spy movie written by a poet. 
is how it comes off to me. Um, and we will get into – actually, you know what I was going to say? We'll get into some of the language and the music and the things uh, that, that were pop up in the show uh, in a minute. At least we'll get to a, a particular song that, that, that John Tavner's character – sings as a way of it's also a great expositional tool by the way but let me just say this let me or let me just lay this out if i can andrew well i kind of jumped into why i love the show is there anything else you want to say about why this show spoke to you upon first viewing before we actually start just kind of laying out the plot of episode one well i I will say this one of the reasons i wanted to do a podcast about it is because you know, I binged this pretty quickly, I think both seasons, maybe even while traveling, because I remember coming home and I had watched all of these on my iPad device, my iPad-like device, and mm-hmm. I, as you know, you often do on a trip, and then I came home and I still had like, I think, three quarters of the last one to watch. And so I remember instead of going into the TV room, I sat at my kitchen table with a drink and my iPad just glued to the screen, like drinking in the last, you know, 45 minutes of this show. And then it ended. At that time, we didn't know that there certainly wouldn't be a, a season three. Frankly, I'm still kind of in denial about that. I I still believe that maybe hey, somehow they're, they will. In the world we live in, you know, shows get dropped from one platform all the time only to get picked up somewhere else. The problem for Patriot is right now this podcast that we're doing is the only buzz that I can <laughs> yeah, find. I know. And I don't think it's buzzy enough. But, I mean, it's like, you know, you see that you see that a lot where shows now get picked up by somebody else. Um, I don't know if this if this will happen with Patriot. I sure would like it. Um, and maybe we'll start maybe we'll start up groundswell of fandom here, Andrew. Yeah, I and mean, also, though, I mean, it kind of worries me if Conrad is kind of moving on to another project that he probably is very into right now and is also using some of the same actors. Maybe his energy is somewhere else. But just to go back to what I was saying well, we before. we can write it. So, yeah, I sure. Mean, oh, I could I'm write just, this I want easily. this to sure. serve as a, my official... Uh, I'm officially volunteering to write season three of Patriot. Um, But anyway, so going back to this uh, little image that I'm trying to uh, paint here. So I'm sitting at my kitchen table and, uh, you know, I watched the last of it and I feel like, wow, that was quite a journey as I already kind of spoiled for you a second ago. Like it does not end with any kind of great conclusion. You definitely want more when this thing ends. But what I found at the end of watching both seasons, I didn't even want more plot. I will say that it is a type of show where it gets frustrating at times because he keeps on trying to achieve one mission, but then it it sort of feels like every time you take a step forward, the characters are taking two steps back. It's kind of one of those things. It feels it's like it's hard for I mean, the whole point of the show is this guy is against all odds in trying to get his missions taken care of. But when that final scene faded to black... I'm assuming it faded. Um, And there were still some questions about what's going to happen next on these adventures. I didn't care about the adventures. I just wanted to live in the world some more. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to... I didn't want to say goodbye to the characters. I almost didn't care what happens with the mission. I just don't want to stop eavesdropping on John, having conversations with his, his indescribable brother, and their relationship cool and their dad. <laughs> cool Rick, exactly. Edward slash Cool Rick. So, I mean, I just fell in love with the universe so much, and I didn't uh-huh. want it to end. And so what I did immediately was what 
I often do in these types of situations. I fired up my phone and looked for the Patriot podcast so I could at least listen to some people talk about something I love and that they love. And there didn't seem to be any podcast doing that. So I guess hopefully we're those people. Here it is. Yeah. Sorry, world. You know what? You got the Patriot podcast. <laughs> yeah. You, what is it? You, you don't go into Patriot podcasting with the podcast you want. You go into Patriot podcasting with the podcast you have. And I will say and this. If, if Peter Sagal starts a Patriot podcast, I will seriously bonk him on top of the head. Um, so let's talk about season one, episode one, titled Milwaukee, America. Um, the, uh, the way that this show starts basically is this character, John Tavner – he is uh, he's a he's a CIA agent, but he kind of exists in this sort of un mostly unsupervised state. The, the 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 CIA person in charge of him, I guess, is his dad. And he's been sent out on these various uh, missions, including uh, a mission where he went to Iran and he was supposed to kill someone to try to keep Iran from getting a, a nuclear weapon. And he killed the wrong person. And so he and he ended up getting captured and tortured and kind of broken down as a person. And so his 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 sort of his brain ain't right. And this was I will mention, Andrew, a bit of a challenge for me in a good way of watching this show is that the main character is never doing the thing I want him to do in the moment. He is He's clearly, like, profoundly depressed. He's one of those people who's just trying to get through the next five minutes of his life all the time. He does not have the quick reply. He's often in a situation where someone's mad at him about something, and instead of – I always have the feeling of wanting him to just explain what happened. Just tell the guy why you weren't at the meeting or just – you know, say something snappy. He never has the snappy retort. Mm -hmm. He's sort of, I don't want to say he's an anti-hero, but he's not, he, he's, he's, he's just never the guy saying like, um, you know, saying the quick snappy line. And that's hard for me to watch, but in a good way, like it, it just, it was, it was, it kept me totally fascinated, even though sometimes it was agonizing for me. Mm -hmm. So we basically meet him when he is going to interview for a job at this pipe company, piping company in Milwaukee called McMillan, hence the name of this podcast, McMillan Men. That'll become that'll become more clear in uh, subsequent episodes. But he's there trying to interview. He's there trying to get a job because he needs to basically have the cover of working for this piping company because this piping company does a lot of business in Europe. They do business in Luxembourg, and he just needs a cover for going over to Europe and doing work for the CIA. And so he's trying to get this job in this industry that he knows nothing about, an industry that is ridiculously specific in terms of the terminology they use around this stuff. You want to talk about a universe unto itself. The world of this Macmillan Piping Company is is hilarious and, and intentionally Baroque, I think. So um, I don't know if Baroque's the word I want to use there. Maybe Byzantine? Anyway... Um, should we start with Andrew either playing the tape 
where he is trying to kind of get the job, but he realizes he's going to have to take a pee test? Or should we start with him playing a folk song that kind of lays out what went wrong in Iran? Well, let's just do that to stick with chronology here for a second. So, again, if you haven't seen the show, I I do wonder how much of that tape that we just started with cold at the beginning of the show made sense to you. It will probably make sense to you more now if you go back to the beginning later. Don't stop the podcast now. Do not. I saw you reaching for it. Do not stop the podcast. When you're done listening all the way through, go back and re-listen to that tape. Um, And it's all set up there. That's his dad. Uh, His dad's name is Tom, right? That's uh, Terry O'Quinn from Lost. Terry O'Quinn. Yep. Just amazing performance. But um, we hear him kind of explaining exactly what's going on. You know, as you said, John is dealing with a lot of post-traumatic stress and what appears to be depression. Uh, Right now, at the beginning of the show, he's kind of mentally recuperating in Amsterdam, just kind of getting high all the time, playing his guitar on park benches, watching the birds, and um, working out his feelings and riding his bike everywhere. And apparently also uh, competing in um, bull, uh, what bull riding contests, mechanical, mechanical bull riding, bull riding contest. contests. Yes. Yeah, so, um, and he's working out his feelings and songs. And so this is the first time I think we see John, we go into Amsterdam, he's sitting on a park bench, just kind of singing this song to himself. And it lays out everything that he's been through. In June, 2011, United States learned Iranian president Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was fucking around with new centrifuges. Egyptian physicist Mohammed Baba Almashed was hired to produce the catalyzed uranium. I was tested Shumashed while he was on vacation. Keep Iran from activating short range nuclear weapons to destroy Israel. I got some really bad intelligence Shot an old male hotel maid Who was just making the physicists bed My evacuation team parked on the wrong street I was arrested by the secret king's police I got a fair dose of white torture Which is supposed to completely erase your sense of self I'm showing several signs of increasing mental instability Talking to my wife would be that would be awfully nice You can't just go right back to the U.S. after You target a guy on their behalf And some genius park me in Amsterdam I've just been getting bait Just looking up at birds Wondering why there aren't male hotel maids in other countries You never see that Never see that So after he's been, um, you know, he's already been caught and tortured and everything over his mistake of accidentally killing the wrong person, a, a chambermaid, he's still clearly just dealing with the guilt over killing an, yeah. an innocent guy. I find the ending of that song to be so relatable. I mean... Because who hasn't accidentally killed the wrong person while trying to thwart an Iranian nuclear plot? But I do actually find it relatable because what's happening is he's super bummed out that he killed the housekeeper in the hotel instead of the guy he was trying to kill. And he's also at the end of all – and he's been tortured and and like you said, he's just trying to like kind of just 
piece himself back together. And he's also like, this wouldn't have happened if they would have had a female maid in the mm-hmm. hotel room. Mm-hmm. Like he would have walked into the hotel room and he would have realized that, well, that's not the guy. And he was like, so it's like, that's something that's, it's that kind of experience where you're like, okay, I was in the wrong, but also the universe wasn't doing me any favors mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with the like, like, God, of all the places for them, for it to be the culture that they also have male hotel maids, this is the place, you know? And the other thing that I thought was, is, is and this is going to be a recurring theme throughout, and it's part of what's sort of great, but also torturous about watching this show is like... Everybody can relate to working at a place where people are mostly incompetent. Mm-hmm. And what's crazy I is I mean, like not the us in American public media, but in jobs past. No. And not you as the co-host of a podcast oh, yeah. with me. And certainly not you. But I wouldn't be thinking that. It's 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 so fascinating to see what happens when – because, you know, if you, were, if you do like black ops for the CIA or whatever this technically falls under, you still have – you still work with people who can be incompetent at times. And it's like – to see what the what the, to, to see the repercussions of incompetence when it's in this workplace, it's really kind of funny and also like just intense because like what part of the thing that goes wrong is, you know, the his extraction team is in the wrong place. That's why he gets captured. You know, like there's just basically like people are not checking their email. Essentially, I don't know what the CIA version of email is. People are not doing their other jobs and so he's then the it what ends up happening so much in this show is that John Tavner is trying to fix something that somebody else has screwed up and it always ends up just totally and completely um all of the all of the damage around trying to fix something always ends up just landing on John Tavner um which would you say that's kind of a theme of this show Oh absolutely I mean the, I... Only to change it a, a tiny, tiny bit. It's not even like he's trying to fix other people's mistakes. The sole job of all of these people who are making mistakes around him are to support him. He, on all of these missions, I mean, essentially, we're now talking about a, a, a past bungled mission. And now for the next two seasons, we're going to see him on basically one mission that ends up becoming more and more complicated because of all of the mistakes of the people around him. So he's not even trying to fix their mistakes. All of their mistakes are putting him in grave danger constantly. And they start with like small things and nobody acts Mm -hmm. professionally around him. Like you say, he got, he got caught in this particular instance in 2011 that we learned through the song and flashbacks because you know, his support team parked on the wrong side of the street. And then you see the support team like punching each other and getting into a fight over it because they're, you know, pettily arguing with each other. And it's like that. And he, you constantly, that's why I love this first episode. If you are a listener who is now on our recommendation, watched this first episode and has seen no other episodes. And you're a little bit concerned that you're lost. I promise you, it all comes together. Rewatching this episode last night, I felt like it was flawless. I don't know that I felt like it was flawless when I first watched this episode. I think that I thought this better pay off because right now I'm really confused. There's a lot of exposition, but it's done so craftily and cleverly that you don't know you're getting the exposition until you know the score later on and you rewatch this episode and you're like, wow, 
they laid it all out. They lay out every single theme that you're going to see, including this this ongoing theme of incompetence that gets him in more and more danger. Um, I think you see almost every, well, not every, but almost every major player, you at least see a quick yeah. a quick on-screen shot of them at some point with a quick explanation of who they are. This is a show that will send you down a journey that you just got to keep on trusting it will pay off, and it will. Let me just, and I'm sorry to backtrack here, but let me just tip my cap to the opening credits of the show and the music they use in the opening credits. It's totally, it's super unexpected. It's a song by a a, a singer named Vashti Bunyan, a British singer from like the 70s who has her own crazy story. I went, I literally ordered this album on vinyl that they use as the opening theme song. It is a very kind of quiet, folky song called Just Another Diamond Day. And it's playing. So, you know, there'll be like the show will start and then something will happen and then it'll go to the credits, the opening credits. And it'll be these sort of home movies of these two brothers just, you know, riding dirt bikes and shooting guns and just being kind of, you know, wild kids in Texas and just even I don't even know like the actors they hired to do these home movies. Thank you. This is the this is the song, the opening credit song for season one of a show about spies. If this if you just want to know the tone, <laughs> the unexpected tone that Patriot sets, it's this. And like there's this moment in the opening credits when these two, they're little kids in this part of the credits, and they're driving little kid dirt bikes, which is relevant to your interest, Andrew, yes. having recently traveled through Australia with you. And I just want to get a dirt <laughs> bike like, so bad. You were like hardcore dirt bike fantasizing when we were in the outback. But these two little kids, like, they are driving these like little kid dirt bikes, and then they lay them down on their sides, and then they start doing this jig. They just do this like celebratory dance. It kills me. It's one of my favorite parts of the entire show are these little kids dancing next to their dirt bikes, which is just the opening credits. And what you're saying also plays into – I feel like there is no detail – there is no wasted detail in this show. Mm. Like everything that you see is – for a reason and it ties back in and I wanted to talk about these intro credits too because like you said they're all shot almost like um almost like a modern version of uh, the Wonder Years style right it's all like sure. quote unquote found yeah. footage that these two right. boys right. took videotape high 8 it's like a variety of yeah. different kinds of, of 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 filming well actually I think it's V8 I think this oh. specifically is VHS because that's what oh, these okay. kids would have grown up with and even that – so you see these shots of these two two kids. You don't even know probably until several episodes later that you maybe make – well, maybe I'm just dumb – that you make the connection of like, oh, this one is John. This is clearly his brother, Edward. You start to see – once you learn these characters, you see their dynamics even in shots of them as toddlers up until about age yes. 12. That John is the one who – they're both always getting in trouble. John is the one who's kind of – brave and maybe leading the charge on some of these things and like smoking cigarettes at an early age. And the fact that it's on a VHS camera comes into the actual plot of the first episode because later on we see their dad, Tom, Tom, right? How do I keep on stumbling on his name? Uh, Tom. Yeah, Tom. We see the, the, you know, the 
high up guy at the CIA and these two guys dad he's watching these old videos that his sons taped behind his back getting in trouble doing things like riding real bulls as kids that they shouldn't they grew up in Texas and then there's a kind of a side plot point about we see the kids break the camera we see it through the actual footage during the during the episode and then later on tom can and they say we're going to blame our grandma uh mima on this and later yes. on uh, they don't know that you know tom God. the dad has seen this so their their lie is blown up 20 There's years later so much i want to say in response to what you just said i'll do this very briefly but then i want to go back to talk about what you said about no detail wasted because i think that's a really good point there's a the the, the brief version of, of what happens there is like you said the dad is just kind of reminiscing and he's watching the video camera he's watching videotapes and he sees the tape where they break the camera and they had blamed it on their grandma and so then in the, the modern world where his sons are now grown one of them is the cia agent the other is is a congressman now he's talking to the congressman one uh edward and he asks him he's just curious he goes did you break that camera or did your grandma really break the camera, which had been the story from 20 years ago? And they're just sitting on a porch, and the brother goes, she broke it. He goes, so you're like 80, your 80-year-old grandma took this video camera out and broke it. And he goes, yeah, she was Texas strong. And country just strong. Him, country strong. Him saying she was country strong, I don't know why that makes me laugh so hard. It's such a weird like it's such a weird way of explaining why the grandma would be messing with the camera, but it's also beautiful because I feel like we live in such a jingoistic society now where people often use shit like that. Oh, I'm just country strong or these colors don't run or whatever. We people use these kind of just like jingoistic phrases that don't have any real meaning as a way of explaining something that they can't really explain logically. It was just like a beautiful, perfect little moment that made me laugh. And there's I mean literally thousands of them throughout the the show and, and throughout the this series the well, thing I was gonna say about wait the can no i age... jump in on that though because I, I i have a thought on that too because i've been doing a lot of thinking about that i think again going to my argument that nothing is wasted in in these sh scenes and these shots the fact that edward the brother um just keeps up the lie and he doesn't even do it in a convincing way. I, mean, I actually want to play the tape here if you don't mind. He just like goes into lie mode when he's talking to his dad. He won't make eye contact. He just stares straight ahead almost like he's being interrogated and he said, yep, nope, Mima did it. She was country strong. And I thought he did a pretty good job of lying, honestly. Well, I, I thought the lack of pause makes it effective. I think it was like lack of, I, I disagree. I think that like it's so clear. It's like, nope, not going to fold on this. I'm sticking with the company line. And I think that is setting up, again, the relationship between him and John, because I could be wrong about this. But to me, that illustrated the loyalty. Like there's just a lot of dynamics in this in the relationships between Tom and his two sons, John and Edward. And. I could be wrong, but I could have sort of took that as I'm not going to betray John here. Like maybe, maybe he's also just saving his own ass as an adult. Can we just take a listen to the scene? Because I, I love yeah. his I just love this patter. This is John's address. Get John. Tell him I need him. Come home. I'm worried about him. He's been gone a while. Absolutely. I will get him home. Hey. I wanted to ask you, no reason, it just crosses my mind from yeah. time to time. When you and John were younger, Eddie, yeah. I have always wondered, did my 
92-year-old mother really remove from its case and then just completely fucking demolish my Sony VX3 video camera? Yes. And you're sure you and John weren't just fucking around with it, doing something stupid? No. Mima did it. She was country strong. <laughs> and that's it. He just sticks to it and just stares straight ahead until the conversation passes. I love it. Okay, so... Uh, back to the thing about no detail sort of going wasted. I feel like part of why I don't like a lot of shows is because it's easy to have people doing things that are quote-unquote random. Like, it's not difficult to create odd behaviors in characters or things that are seen as quirky or random. But what's hard is to make all of those things actually add up to something. And, like, I, I would say that a problem I have with some with, with certain, like, even I said that this has a David Lynchian component to me. I say this having watched very little of David Lynch's work. But there are things that David Lynch will do that I have seen in like a movie like Mulholland Drive where I just don't – it just seems like weirdness for the sake of weirdness. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I'm not personally like the hugest fan of. But like you said, when someone has a quirk on this show, it's always really like – it's th- clearly the creators of the show, in my opinion, have thought through – why this person does this, how they got there, how it's going to impact their arc. Like, it's just like you said, there's just, it was a perfect way of saying it. There's just no wasted detail on this show, which I just absolutely love about it. Um, let me now, if I can, though, start the just kind of chronological description of, of what happens in this episode. And I guess we can just talk about it and see uh, kind of what what sparks our, our joy and our interest as we talk about this. So we've already set up that the John Tavner character, he's like the main guy. It's the guy on the cover. He's the CIA agent. He's been through all that stuff. He's kind of a broken person. And he is now being brought back to the United States to try to basically establish a cover story for going back to Europe to try to continue thwarting this uh, Iran getting a nuclear weapon. And so he shows up in Milwaukee at this. This is all at the behest of his father. He shows up in Milwaukee trying to get a job at this piping company. And uh, he's very, um, you know, he's, he's pretty sketchy on the details of piping because it's not really a thing that he knows very much about. And the interview that they give him is this whole boardroom of people asking him hyper-specific questions. In I don't know, by the way, if any of this terminology they use related to the Macmillan Company is real. Some of it must be. I don't know if some of it is literally just made up in Stephen Conrad's mind, but it is – it is beautiful and mellifluous unto itself. I mean, it's really incredible. But, uh, and spoiler alert, uh, something something that happens that initially gave me a sense, something that, that indicated to me, Andrew, that this was not going to be like any other TV show that I've watched, was the John Tavner character goes through the interview. He does not really nail it. There's another guy who's also interviewing for the job who does nail it because turns out he actually works in this industry. And as they're kind of outside, he and the other applicant, who's a really jovial guy, they're just kind of chatting, like, hey, how'd it go? And the other guy's like, ah, I think it went really well. And uh, our guy, John Tavner, knows that he did not get the job. And these two are just sort of walking along this road, uh, like parking lot area, and they're going out to a relatively busy highway. And he just – you have no indication this is coming as a viewer. He just – John Tavner just – shoves the other dude right in front of a moving truck and literally tries to kill him in this moment. 
so that he will be able to get the job. Now, is it because he's dying to work in the piping industry? Absolutely not. It's because he is a person who will do what he has to do. But they, in order to right. advance the mission. But what I especially love about that scene is the way it is, um, the way it unfolds. They make that the first scene, I believe, post credits, or is that even the very? I think that's actually the very first scene of the show. So at this point, we don't know he's a spy. We don't know what a well. We do know what a knock is a. NOC, a non-official cover, because it, the the show begins with a definition of it. It means basically right. you're working kind of the gray area of the of the CIA. You're not just like parachuting in somewhere. You got to kind of establish right. yourself with a with a. But business. you get a job at this piping company to go do spy work, but nobody at the piping company knows you're a spy. It's not like a you fake kind CIA of, a piping right. Company. No, it's yeah. a real company where no right. one there knows that you're doing real CIA shit. So that creates a lot of tension on the show. Right. So all we know so far is there's something called a knock, and then I think the very first scene is we open up on a guy being interviewed we have no idea who john is we just know that he's an applicant for a job he just really screwed up the interview and then he tries to kill the guy who did well in his interview and you're just like what and then everything else as the show goes on they fill in the backstory so with the other guy out of the way at least we think for now with the other applicant out of the way uh we can presume now that um that the john tavner character is actually going to get hired for the job because he's almost killed the only competition. And so now all he needs to do is take this – he needs to submit his urine for this pee test so that he can uh, get approved and so he can then uh, get hired and then he can go back to Luxembourg under the cover of working for this company. And that's a problem. I assume, by the way, it's never really addressed, but it's just because he's been in Amsterdam just like – just doing massive amounts of drugs – that he's not going to pass this P test? Is yeah. that why we think this is a problem? Yeah, he's been just smoking weed. Like He says in his song, all he's been doing is getting super baked and watching birds. And we see him smoking yeah. joints constantly. One of the things that's interesting about this show, too, Andrew, is the way that they mess with... I mean, this was something that on Game of Thrones people would give them shit for. Eventually, towards the later seasons, like, how did they get to the wall that fast? There's a bit of that in this show, which is that, like... People just travel between Milwaukee and Luxembourg, like, rapidly. You know what I mean? Like, it's like you're just sort of one place, and then you're kind of another place, and then you're back at the first place. And you have to kind of just go with that, I think, as a device on the show. Did you notice that at all? Um, I noticed that very much in the second season. Uh, We're going to eventually meet – actually, in this episode, we'll meet her for the first time. But um, there's another character who's a detective who is going to try to – figure out what's going on she's a she's a detective from luxembourg and um and in the second season i got really confused because it seemed like she was almost in two places at the same time as far as like you know international travel is concerned you mean detective agath albans played by aliette offheim oh just off the top of your head oh great I'm proud that I actually wrote down all the characters' yeah. names and the actors who play them. But anyway, so he's 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 now uh, he's now basically at this point where if he can pass this p test, he's good to go for this thing. But of course, he can't pass the p test, so he goes into the men's bathroom. And this is also the beginning of understanding that this show is not going to work like other spy shows because on another spy show, I guess I don't even know what this character would do. But what he wouldn't do is what. John Tavner in Patriot does, which is literally go up and just sort of accost another dude at the urinal who works for Macmillan 
and explain to him exactly who he really is so he can get the guy's pee so he can pass the test. It is such a weird move, and it's very uh, on brand for this show. And I think you actually have this tape ready to yeah, go, too. Yeah, let's take right? a listen to this. Can I talk to you about something? Listen, I'm in a situation. Hey, can you not be for a second? So just to keep in mind, this guy is just standing at a urinal, minding his own business, peeing. John comes up to him, stands at the urinal next to him, and tells him to stop peeing. Can I not? What? Don't pee. My name's John, but my last name's not Lakeman. I am interviewing for a position in process design, but I'm also an intelligence officer. Don't pee. Please. Are you peeing, Dennis? No. I need this job because I have to work in accredited construction overseas to go places Americans aren't supposed to. Okay. Without leaving a trail. Okay. Luxembourg. Yeah. Iran. Yeah, we go there. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm here. I have to hand over some money in Luxembourg and then be in Iran. I can hear you being, man. I'm sorry, man. That's because I started a little before and it's hard to stop. <laughs> Yeah, like we're gonna. We've never seen this character Dennis before. He's gonna become a yeah. very big part of the show, and we're gonna learn about him. And he's gonna be. Everybody in this show is quirky in some way. He's definitely got his quirks. He may be my favorite character in the show. But right oh now, all we know is he's a guy who's minding his own business, peeing. Some guy comes up to him. Like in a men's warehouse suit. Yeah. Like he's just the most, like, just anonymous drone at some sort of company guy. And some stranger comes up to him in his place of work and says, I'm a government spy. I'm trying to um, get a job here so that I can go to Iran and Luxembourg, and I'm doing it for America and then the stranger scolds him for continuing peeing and his reaction is to apologize and and that's we're just starting to see some of the character that Dennis is if you could maybe hurry it up make it shorter or something I have to oversee the distribution of hard money across Iran just stop Israel from being fucked up basically McMillan's the only company that banks where they bank that works on the ground in Iran I'm not going to pass this urine test. So I need yours. It's not just me. The country. The USA. The USA needs my pee. (laughs) (laughs) And he's already in it. He's intrigued by the fact that he can uh, help the USA with his urine. Yeah. One of the – like I, I already sort of said this before the clip, but it's like one of the things about this show that I just found so delightful was how the, particularly the John the John Tavner, John Lakeman character is just constantly like – he's just constantly not doing the thing I expect him to do. Like based on all the tropes that we think we understand about spycraft and the way that he gets things done, it's just kind of like, you know – I don't know. I didn't expect him to talk to him. I didn't expect, you know, b- to jump ahead uh, when he gets to the airport and he's been separated from this very important bag, the way he goes about trying to get that fixed. Like he just he has this kind of practicality to him that is a kind of fun to watch, but it always just creates a shitload of problems. Yeah. And I think and I think uh, even in later episodes, this holds up like. John himself is not incompetent, right? Can you think of any major mistakes that he makes? No, he's a really quick thinker. Like, he's a slow talker usually and a low talker, and he's very introspective and thoughtful. But 
in the occasion where some, a decision has to be made quickly, he just does it without thinking. I'm thinking yes. about the moment where somebody is stealing this bag of his with tons of money in it, like that basically sets up the entire plot, this money that he's trying to get uh, into the right hands in Iran. Uh, it gets stolen. He immediately starts cha- – you think he's going to try to chase down the scooter – on foot, which is impossible, but he never pauses. He just picks up a, a big piece of wood, pallet. a pallet, clubs a security guard, and steals a bunch of information off the wall. And you later find out that's so that he can track down the employee who stole this. Like, he never pauses there. I was really struck by that yes. later on in the show. Yeah, he is like ever forward. It's mm-hmm. interesting. He's kind of an interesting guy to watch because. You're right. He's not incompetent at all. He's always just he somehow goes into this like sort of muscle memory reflexive thing of what he needs to do. But it's so uh, unorthodox, but it's unorthodox in a cool way. It's not unorthodox like Hobbs and Shaw holding uh, a helicopter down with pure strength. (laughs) You know, it's unorthodox in a way that seems like I don't know. I don't know if it would work or not, but it's kind of it just seems if, if there's a way for this to be relatable. The way that he's going through things seems kind of oddly relatable. So he gets the P, he gets the job, and oh, and let's just take a quick moment if we can to talk about that Dennis character and the guy that plays him, Chris Conrad. Chris Conrad is the brother of Stephen Conrad, the creator of this show. And Chris Conrad is – I'm with you. I've, I haven't seen both seasons yet, but as far as like season one into season two, as far as I am on this, I think – the Dennis McLaren character is honestly my favorite character. And that's a tough because they're like almost everybody on this show is my favorite character. Mm-hmm. He is unbelievably funny, surprising, weird. And it's so great because like you said, Andrew, when he gets approached in the bathroom, he just looks like a drone. You just don't even think he's going to be part of this show. And he's mm-hmm. totally part of the show and he's amazing. And I, I, I want to say this delicately because there's like a not unreal chance that this will actually this this episode and maybe this show will somehow get on the radar of some of the people that make Patriot. I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say that's how low level the buzz is. Well, I worked with one of the guys who's a writer on the show way back. I saw the credits right. at the end. Um, he go, uh, His nom de plume was Sherwin Sleeves and I'm blanking on his name, but he's still a reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio where I worked for like 10 years. He I edited like store like, commentaries of his back in the day, and then uh, I, sh- I should look up his real name. But yeah, I mean, th- th- it's a small world, right? So there's a chance that everybody who we're talking about will hear this, I guess. But I was going to say, I mean, on the one hand, you see, so Chris, I, I immediately became obsessed with this actor, Chris Conrad, and I was looking him up, and I was surprised that he didn't have a ton of IMDb credits before this, because I was like, how is this? How is this guy? Sorry, I'm just getting probably a robocall from the Republican Party. Um, I was, or it's Chris Conrad. Shit! Wow, it's happening. This before we've even put this show out. I'll take this opportunity to say the name of the uh, writer who I'm talking about is Sean Hurley, who I still believe is a contributor to New Hampshire Public Radio, if not a full time employee. But he has one of the main um, writing credits on this show as well. And, and the stuff that he first started writing for NHPR was also very bizarre in the voice of a of a fake character he made up. So I was surprised. That Chris Conrad hadn't been in a million things because he's so good. And then I realized, oh, his brother makes the show. And then it's kind of like, well, what was Stephen Conrad throwing Chris Conrad somewhat of a bone <laughs> putting him in this show? Uh, but if that was the case, I mean, what I get the feeling of these Conrad brothers, and there's a few of them, are like super talented. And they, I think they've just been making weird shit together 
for their whole life, like since they were kids. Um, and this is just a case where finally there was a budget to really put it on kind of wide display. And it is amazing. I think that Chris Conrad is one of my favorite, like, new actors that I've found out about in the last five years. He's just so good in this show. There is a scene where he – he in, and you know the scene. I, I'm, I, I bet you you know the scene I'm talking about. When he walks into the hotel room? When he walks into yep. John's hotel room and takes off his shirt? Yep. <laughs> yes. It's – I can't stop thinking about it. So they end up – they get to Luxembourg, as we've already mentioned. So that so John Lakeman's bringing all this money over because it's supposed to pay off a certain person to try to stop this nuclear thing from happening. And, of course, the problem is – and this is where the incompetency happens. They're telling him, you got 10 million euros in this, like, you know, lay sport bag, you know, garment bag, but you're going to fly on a private jet, so you're not even going to go through security. Well, somebody didn't do their research because it turns out this McMillan team, they're not flying on a private jet. Flying on like United Airlines or something. And so now he's totally fucked because he's got this ten million dollars in euros, ten million euros, that he can't bring through the, you know, TSA checkpoint. So he's got to check it. But when he checks it, that means somebody in the bowels of the airport in Luxembourg who all who rechecks the bags that have been checked notices that there's ten million euros in here and then the bag gets stolen. He's got to try to get it back. But anyway, they end up in Luxembourg, he's in his hotel room. He's been through a whole thing, and in walks Dennis of the urine donation. And Dennis now, because he knows that John Lakeman is a secret agent, he wants to be in on it. And his way of proving that he's up to the task of being part of this is to take his shirt off to explain that he is actually pretty buff, therefore can handle this. And he just and then he takes off his shirt and just stands there while John just silently stares at him while he's still on the phone with another spy, by the way. Um, yes. He tells John not to come in his room, but John just I'm sorry. Uh, he tells Dennis not to come in, but Dennis just comes in anyway, says, by the way, if you need me, I'm really buff. And John just stares at him, bewildered and patient. And then and then he just starts not slowly, but not super quickly either, just taking off his shirt and his undershirt. He just stand and he is buff. I mean, he's built, right? We will later learn that he's yes. got a little gym in uh, the basement of his house where he lives with a wife and two kids that he doesn't seem to like all that much. Um, and uh, and he just takes off his shirt and just stands there and then just says, in case you thought I was lying. It's so good. Yeah, the I think the, I think so the line he says, I'm super jacked. Yeah, right. I'm <laughs> super say. jacked. Like, how is that relevant to any of this? It's his way. I think as you probably can't tell because you know, he's wearing like a like a blousey mm-hmm. kind of dress shirt. He's like, you probably can't tell, but I'm super jacked. It's just like the weirdest way of trying to demonstrate capability in this in this matter. But it's just great. And it's sort of like, again, very much the way this show is going to work. It's just people doing weird things with the intention of, of, of getting something done or proving something or accomplishing something, but going about it in a very odd way. Mm-hmm. So um, the other people that are in Luxembourg with our main character initially are Kurtwood Smith. You may know him from that 70s show. He was the dad on that 70s show. I got to be honest with you. I didn't watch that show very much. I never really got the appeal of it. So I didn't have a huge thought on Kurtwood Smith one way or the other. He plays this character named Leslie Claret. But how did you what did you think of his he, work in RoboCop? Oh, you know what? I don't have a memory of it, but I bet it was good. <laughs> That's the I only other thing is, I knew him from. Yep. What I can tell you is that from his work on Patriot, he's 
Incredible. Incredible. That's why I say when I say if I think that the Dennis McLaren, if I think that's my favorite character on the show, that's that's it's hard for me to to pick a favorite character because the Leslie Claret character is also just unbelievably interesting. So he is kind of upper management at this piping company and he takes it really seriously and he immediately dislikes the main dude, John Tavner, because John Tavner doesn't know his piping because guess what? He's not really in the industry. And this, like the Kurtwood Smith character is just constantly let down by John Tavner's character because he's never making it to meetings on time because he's off killing Brazilians to try to get the bag back. He doesn't know that he's he's parking in the wrong parking spot. He's just always fucking up and it's just bothering Kurtwood Smith so much. And that's one of those relationships where it's it's delightfully torturous for me to watch them interact because the whole time I just keep wanting the Michael uh, the John Tavner character played by Michael Dorman, I keep wanting him to just like pipe up, so to speak. And just explain himself in some logical way. Maybe not fully say I'm a secret agent, but just like it's just all, he's always disappointing the Leslie character. And then he's always just kind of mumbling, I'm really sorry. And it's just like the Leslie character just continues to have the lowest opinion of him. And it's like I just it like I said, it's this like it's this weird. I'll just say it. It's this weird like edging of watching the show, of constantly wanting him to just... Because he's, you know, John uh, John Tavner's character is super competent at the thing he's supposed to be good at, which is spy stuff. Yeah, you know, though, I'm wondering, I'm really struggling with whether or not I should say, say the details of what I want to talk about right now. There is a just wonderful episode that I think is near the beginning of season two, where... Leslie is really trying to repair his relationship with John and kind of saying, listen, we got off on the wrong foot and let's just like sit down and get to know each other. Okay. And I'm is not going to tell full breakfast. It's, yeah. It's like, it's that is that's the episode. And for those who haven't watched that far ahead, I'm not going to tell you exactly what happens, but Leslie gives a little bit of background information on himself. And then it's John's turn to give background information on him. Self. But, of course, he's playing a character. He's a spy. He needs to think of something to say here. And the background that he gives, this one detail of his life growing up, is the exact op- – it's the of, – of an infinity number of things to choose to say. He said the one wrong thing to Leslie. Right. And it makes me think – so I was it involves before- tugboats. Exactly right because it's one thing that that, it's one thing that Leslie knows about. He could have picked any other topic, but he says, "Okay, you know, I I know a lot about this." He just sets himself up, which makes me think that, like, so John. Clear a second ago, I was saying John's almost flawless. He's not flawless in his craft because part of being a spy is being able to lie on your feet. Um, And but it also feels like Leslie specifically is his kryptonite. Like, I don't yes. see him blunder around other people. It just – and I think we all have relationships like that sort of, right? You can be like – I yes. worked with somebody like this. You know, like I, I, I – most people like working with me. I've never had any issues, but I worked with somebody one time who just had my number. And then every time I was around her, it just got worse and worse. I was like, I am not this person <laughs> around anybody else I but currently you. work with someone like that. All right. All right. That me? Um I'm talking about Elena Passarello. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> Livewire, one of my other shows I work on. No, uh, I, that's the that's perfectly said, Andrew. Leslie is <laughs> is John's kryptonite, and watching 
every time Leslie comes around and glows green, watching John lose strength <laughs> yeah. just kills me as yeah. a viewer. But it also keeps me totally engaged because I'm just like it's it's just it's again it's just like this this itch that you can't scratch, and it's just so it's torturous, but in a in a kind of a good fun way. So, um, anyway, the. All of this is about this money getting delivered into the right hands in Iran or in Luxembourg so that this nuclear threat will be somehow sidestepped. And the problem is, I mean, first of all, and this is we'll explore this more as as this series goes on and we talk about all these episodes. But the thing on this show that is also really like I, I don't know, I, I I'm bad at I'm bad at picking up meta themes. I'm bad at. I'm bad at all kind of like any kind of like literary, like, I don't know. What what do you call that when <laughs> I don't even know the word for it when something sort of represents something else. Symbolism, I guess you could call it. I'm very bad at, at, at figuring those kinds of things out from books and movies. Well, the sled was actually his youth or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, I just can't. I'm horrible with that stuff. That being I've said, I've seen the Santa Claus, too. So I got that reference. I just want <laughs> you to know what's. Interesting, the dynamic between John and his dad, Tom Tavner, is is fascinating to me because what you really have is a dad who is constantly fucking up. Mm-hmm. Like, he is putting his son – he is not – in my opinion, he's not good at his job. The dad is bad at his job, and him being bad at his job – it it constantly makes his son's life more dangerous, more impossible. And the question that I have been asking myself as far as I am into the series and that I will continue to ask myself is, why does he do it? Why does he continue to essentially bail his dad out? Not that his dad's not loving, not that his dad's a, trying to be a bad guy. He's not like a – he's not horrible. He's just manipulative in my experience as a viewer. And he just – he is so bad at his job that his son has to keep bailing him out, and he somehow thinks that this is an appropriate thing for his son to be doing. So I, you can assume that the stuff that went wrong the uh, first time in Iran when the wrong person gets killed – by the way, that is – I keep saying it's Iran, but was he actually – in Iran when he shot the hotel maid or was he in some other country? I think he was in Iran and yeah, because he was he trying to the he, King's Guard. But I'm wondering, yeah. I mean, is there a king? Well, actually, I have Iran? the lyrics to that song right here. In June 2011, the, this is the song he's saying, which, by the way, when you look at it written out, like there's not I was even going to mention this when we played that that song before, like there's no structure. There's no rhyming scheme or like a rhythmic structure to these lyrics right. at all. In June 2011, the United States uh, learned that uh, Ahmadinejad was fucking around with new centrifuges. And then there is a physicist. I'm not going to try to pronounce his name because I will get nervous and, and um mess it up but there's a physicist hired to produce the catalyzed uranium i was tasked to shoot uh this person while on vacation to keep from uh to keep iran from activating short-range nuclear weapons so but i don't think the guy was in iran the guy was vacationing somewhere else okay okay i I guess you're right because we see shots of like the family this guy this scientist's family like hang gliding or something Right. And I don't know why that matters to me, but it's just because I guess I'm trying to kind of piece together who's where, when. That's a good point. But anyway, point, my yeah. point is my point is that 
presumably that thing going wrong and him ending up in a black torture site, I'm going to assume that was also something where his dad could have probably sweated the details more. Mm -hmm. If his dad is the supervisor of these things and if the extraction team is not on the right road and if the and if he gets bad intel, I'm going to like, you know, a fish stinks from the head. I'm going to blame Terry O'Quinn's character for at least some of that going sideways. So we can assume that this guy got tortured because of his dad's incompetence. And then he's in Amsterdam just trying to piece his brain back together. And his dad renditions him from Amsterdam back to the U.S. to tell him he's got to go get a job at a piping company so he can get cover to go back to Europe so he can try to fix this uh, nuclear thing. And after he does all this, and every time it's just like he's just like, you know, when you're so tired that you feel like you just can't keep your eyes open, you can't take another step. That's pretty much every scene for John Tavner, except for when he's trying to have sex with his wife and the popsicle man is outside the house. Right. That's the only happiness you see that I can remember. That's pretty much the only time he seems happy, at least in the first episode. Can I just say Every one thing, second. though, about your yeah. about your analysis of him bailing his dad out? I, I just take a little bit of issue with that because okay. I don't think his motivation is to help his dad. I don't, like, save face or save his job. I think the nuclear threat, I think he just realized that the stakes are really high in the same way I think his dad does. I don't think his dad wants to put him in danger. And clearly his dad right. doesn't want to be incompetent. That's just sort of the thing. Sure. I think the reason they both keep doing this and getting deeper and deeper and deeper is because they really do see what a literal threat this is. I haven't watched as much of the show as you do, so I'll defer to you on this. But my sense is it's a dysfunctional relationship. I think – and there's a song they sing in the first episode kind of about family. They're playing guitar together, Terry O'Quinn and Michael – Dorman, and you can tell they're kind of bonding. Like it's like a lot of real relationships, except mm-hmm. the stakes are much higher here. But it's like this, you know. It's like the dad. I think the dad is loves his son very much and thinks family is really important. I think the son loves his dad and wants his dad to be proud of him. I think the dad sucks at his job in small ways that he can't quite figure out, and I think that that shit rolls downhill to his son. Would that be in your to your uh, mind an accurate description of the relationship? Yes, and I think you're right that there are, it, it's more it's more complicated than what I'm saying. It's not like the motivation for everything is just the nuclear threat, but and he definitely has some emotional control over his son. But I I guess I do think, and I could be wrong about this, but I I, I guess I do think that the that they both really are worried about the literal outcomes and that John yeah. feels like if I don't do this, it's not like, oh, I got to bail my dad out. I got to do this because otherwise Iran will have a nuclear weapon or a nuclear capability. And like they say, three months, it starts with a kind of a ticking clock. There's this moment, though, where it's like because the character is just the John character is so beaten down just emotionally, psychologically, physically, eventually. That you just – I mean there would be no show, but there's this moment in the first episode where his brother comes over to Amsterdam to get him and bring him back to begin this whole process of, of the Macmillan job thing. And the John character is like, I don't know. There's this bull, mechanical bull riding contest, and if I win it, I'm thinking about just taking the money and getting my wife. Because, oh, side note, he does have a wife who's living in the U.S. and who only hears from him very periodically because of the deep cover of this whole thing, which – I mean – I feel bad when I'm in Cleveland and I can't call Carrie because mm-hmm. of a time difference. I mean, this is like next level. Um, Carrie doesn't mind it, oddly enough. Hmm. Yeah. She's been, uh, yeah, she says made some new friends and um, I'm, you know, she just says, just get at me when you get a chance. But, you know, I'm bummed. But anyway, 
the the I guess so his brother goes over and is like you got to come back and he's like I might just like take this money if I win this bull riding contest and then I might just uh get a couple bicycles and get my wife over here and uh, uh her name is Alice Tabner played by Kathleen Monroe just off the top of my head who's just amazing by the way there's something about she's, she's great. In, right now she's not she's playing so a great. huge part in the show but I mean she's like one of those she's obviously a very beautiful woman but beyond that there's something that some people just come onto the screen and somehow just kind of like um I don't know. Using very little dialogue, you almost get the feeling like you know this person. <laughs> like she's yeah. able to just do so much without even saying yeah. that much in this episode. There's something that I find to be very spellbinding about her. Absolutely. And there's this moment where he says, well, maybe I'm just going to get a couple bikes and get my wife over here and we'll just go ride bikes in Europe. And I swear to God, watching this episode for the second time last night, I was like, do it. Yes, I know. Just do it. Go. Escape. I know that that bends the space-time continuum. I know that means the show doesn't exist, which means this show doesn't exist. But I just somehow wanted the character to, like, as if in the aha video for Take On Me, I wanted him to just bash against the sides of my flat-screen television and escape into a new reality where that's what happens. Well, and you know, we were talking about this on TBTL, uh, I think, earlier this week. My ridiculous theory that, like, Sometimes I just love the characters in the universe, and I don't want all the tension that goes into. I mean, you obviously like when you watch the movie Us, <laughs> exactly. You're like, why can't this just be a movie about a happy family? The first twenty, thirty minutes of Us before any of the scary stuff happens, you're just like, I love this family, and they're on vacation. I just want them to have fun, and I just want to watch them have fun and joke around for the next ninety minutes. Why do we have to even get into the horror part? Like that's how I right. kind of was at the end of season two when you know, again, the adventure is going to continue continue um and you're just like honestly just give up on the mission i would watch season three my ideal season three is everybody just gets out of the spy business they find a nice safe island somewhere and they just have a really good time and they play guitars and they talk about their feelings and they work some stuff out you know i would watch israel (laughs) yeah you this one you got to figure this out we can't we're not able to thwart this bomb any longer yes but we're we're gonna be we out here on this island right um, so, uh, so anyway, he, but of course he does end up going back to the U S they go to Luxembourg. The, the money finally falls into the hands of the courier. We're like, okay, phew. And then we find out that the money in fact went to the wrong person. Now, real question about that. This is the only thing I told you that everything ties together so nicely. And, you know, if there are some things you don't understand right now, they will all come together. My one question is, how did that happen? I tried to pay attention very closely to the end of the show when the phone call comes and they say you handed it to the wrong guy. John's got the big bag of money. Somebody comes up to an Iranian man comes up or an apparently Iranian man comes up to him and says, John, that's for me. John hands him the bag, is glad to be done with his mission and walks away way we later find out that that was the wrong person that was actually i mean not just a random wrong person but the wrong person exactly who they're trying to um keep the money out of the hands of the the opposition party who if they get into power will be a huge problem um do we do you have clarity on how that happened how did the opposition find out that there's a bag of money in the first place i just chalked it up to one of those TV things, and you. this is very rare on this show, and it's not my way of saying they didn't explain it. My guess is they do explain it, and you and I just didn't grasp it. But I just chalked it up to the 
basically there was a double cross going on where the the people in the U.S. and again this goes back to the dad, Tom Tavner, somehow set this thing in motion and was talking to the wrong people and got double crossed. So whereas he thought that he was having his son get this all this money to the the, the right people in Iran, in fact. The whole time, it was the wrong people in Iran pretending to be the right people, and they've then taken delivery of the money, and now the money is in the wrong hands. And not only is it 10 million euro, which is a significant portion of money, but it's not like – they mentioned this. It's not like the 80s where they get the sense that in the 80s they could just – you know suitcases full of 10 million dollars could just go to the wrong people, and then you just get a new suitcase of 10 million dollars and it go to the right person. Like it was just – I guess I'll just take their word for it. It was much easier to just get this money. There was probably a lot more off the books or something. And now it's like it's really difficult to get that kind of money freed up because there's a lot of questions to be asked uh, that will be asked. And so this this money is 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 like it's like real money in that they can't just get more of it. They've got to figure out how to get this money now back. And that's kind of where we sort of end things, if I'm remembering right, mm-hmm. is now we know that he is – going to have to go back to Luxembourg to somehow steal the money back from the people who now have it who are the wrong people and and uh, that's kind of that's kind of where episode 1 uh, comes to a close. Just one thing that I'll add, because I, I don't think we can go over every single plot point, but a big problem that also is unfolding, we had mentioned that a, a detective is getting involved and is going to start kind of chasing down John. What happens is... In Luxembourg. In Luxembourg, John... She, well, she, let me just mention, she's investigating the murder of one of the people who had the bag, because the guy from the airport who worked there took the bag to his house. By the way, I'm sorry, Andrew, I'm totally... No, that's literally what I was going to so say, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, then, then why don't you say it? I was just going to say, so John loses the bag of money when the guy at the airport, you know, who's checking the bag, sees that it's got all the money in it. So he just gets on a scooter, drives away this airport employee, and then John goes to his house to get it back. He's thinking, I'm an international spy who has, you know, done this kind of thing before. I can get a bag back from some airport employee who ripped it off. Well, he goes there, and this guy has, was it five or six really big brazilian brothers are they they're not brazilian i can't remember yeah, they're brazilian they are brazilian and they know judit yeah Jiu-Jitsu. maybe i should have let you jujitsu jujitsu there we go i got there i got there i love that this show does this thing and I, i'm just gonna believe that they're being factually accurate they throw in these great little on our other show we'd call them dazzling deets that are just like they both kind of move the plot forward, and they also inform me. I think, of course, of um, <laughs> European dimes comes to mind, for in a, or what is it, French dimes? In a oh oh episode. oh, later on in, in in the next season, yes, exactly, yes. The difference of size of dimes in uh, in different parts of the world becomes mm-hmm. a plot point. But in this case, they mention casually that a lot of the like airport employees are actually Brazilian when you are in. Uh, Luxembourg for whatever reason and so and also if you know anything about Brazil and Hoist Gracie and like Gracie Jiu Jitsu like Brazil is a big MMA hotbed it's where a lot of the fighting styles got their start or at least became sort of refined and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is a whole thing and so the guy who steals the bag is Brazilian he's a normal size but then he lives in this house with his five or so brothers who are like Right out of like Brazilian jiu-jitsu central casting. And when 
uh, when John goes there to get the money back, they literally just come out. I love they have a jujitsu mat on the floor <laughs> of the tea, of the living room. And they're all like in like tiny shorts. Like it looks like they just literally got done training. They all just come out and basically start putting him, uh, John, in these like super bad submission holds. Like a bunch of them. Like, and then he has to stab his way out of this situation and he ends up killing one of them. And so that then brings uh, Detective Albans into the situation because she is the investigator in Luxembourg, a place that has like zero murders per year. Right, and the show does a really good job of showing you that, like zero murders, zero murders, zero murders. And then, actually, I was a little confused about this. Then it says 2012, three murders. And we know one of them is this Brazilian brother. Um, Do we, am I lost? Am I being daft? Who are the other two, or do we not know? I don't know, and do we know that 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 refers to, do we know that this show is set in that year? I guess I never really actually thought. They're very specific about that. Yeah, they keep on showing, because they keep on showing little texts on the screen that say whether it's 2012 or a flashback to 2011. I mean, this is like total rank speculation by me, but I wonder if that's foreshadowing because we do know more people do get killed in Luxembourg. Oh, interesting. Like those stats that they show. So like they actually those stats show are text. actually yeah. at the end of the year, but we haven't huh. gotten there yet. That would be interesting. That, yeah. I mean, that's a like a that's a total guess on my part. But but yeah, so what happens is because one of these jujitsu guys gets killed now the Luxembourg PD, and specifically this one uh, incredibly fascinating investigator, I love her relationship with her daughter, mm-hmm. like the way that she talks in the bathtub. She explains sort of what murder is to her mm-hmm. daughter uh, as to why she's going to need to go to the U.S. Now, again, because we're just – we're deep in the weeds already. I'll just ask you, Andrew. I had this weird experience rewatching this episode where I thought, was my <laughs> – was this episode skipping around for me? Was my Amazon Prime doing something? Or had I like – had I just – had my mind filled in some gaps and almost like um, like motion smoothing? Had my mind motion smoothed a couple things? Because I thought she goes – the detective goes to the apartment where the jujitsu guy's dead. And then she says basically find me everybody who has uh, – she tells somebody figure out everybody who bought – who bought a copy of the paper or who no, not signed a paper. up online? You let me jump in here. Yeah, she says yeah, to explain this. she says to one of her other investigators, figure out who just bought an online subscription to the Luxembourg newspaper because she has a theory that if this is a country where no murders ever happen, now suddenly there's a murder and then suddenly somebody signs up for a newspaper subscription, that is probably somebody who's interested in following this story. And so we see right. her say that, and then yes. I think I know I know what you mean. Though it gets a little bit weird because then suddenly she's saying, "I'm going to Milwaukee," and we never see the investigators right. actually find out that it turns out who was it. But Dennis, Dennis McLaren, <laughs> the D guy, to the McSee, the guy who wants to be John's best friend and confidant, and I guess fellow and spy, jacked. and who's super jacked. He does a couple of dumb things. He um, buys the newspaper subscription, so the investigator is going to focus on him. And also, at one point, he's following John when John is going on this mission. He won't stop following John. So John says, if you don't stop following me, I'm going to stab you in the leg. And then uh, Dennis keeps following him, so he stabs him in the leg just to get rid of him. And he says, don't go to a hospital, because John knows that, again, in Luxembourg, there will be records of that. And if somebody comes in with a stab wound, the noose is going to start closing in around them. 
And Dennis does both of those things. He goes to the hospital and he's the one who buys the newspaper subscription. But you are right that they never really show the the connecting the dots A to B structural dynamics of flow. Do they flow. do it in a? Is it? In, do they fill it back in in a subsequent episode? And that's why I think I've seen this. Oh, are you picturing a scene? Uh, maybe because I don't re I don't I, remember. I have it. vague memory of of the chain of events. I think what's I think what's going to happen, and we'll find out next week. There, I gave the four people listening a reason to tune in next week. I think what maybe happens is because the show does jump around in time a bit. Um, I wonder if the, some of that gets explained later on, and I just had kind of filed it all under the same episode or something. But anyway, yeah. So she she has figured out through some through some series of events that she needs to go to she needs to go to Milwaukee to talk to somebody named John Lakeman uh because he he is knows something about this or was in the wrong place at the wrong time No no time. I think she's going to go and, to find Dennis cuz Dennis is the guy who bought the subscription Ah okay um well she's on her way to uh she's on her way to Milwaukee which is again I mean this is one of those what was I ta- I was talking about a different show with our friends Camaro Kev and JD and he was talking JD was talking about it being up a tree he used that as a way of describing like how some some character had to keep, kept going up a tree it just kept getting more and more cornered and it was just kind of like mm. how can this go on mm-hmm. and i feel like that's a sense i have with this show again in a good way but it's like there's it, it's kind of relentless in that it's just everything is always collapsing around John Lakeman and there's always like a person around every corner, uh, including a character named Jack Birdbath, who, like every character on this show, I will say I can't I can't think of any exceptions to this. Every character I can think of on this show who starts off as one thing ends up being so much more interesting and rich as a character than you expect them to be, and maybe none more than the character of Jack Birdbath, who is this doofy looking security guard at the piping company who overhears that piss conversation that we played he's in the stall he's in the urinal and he overhears it and as uh, as as the john character is going to wash his hands and 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 take the piss out of there literally jack birdbath emerges but we don't know what he knows we don't know if he's just an idiot and he didn't hear them because they were whispering we don't know if he heard everything of course, as the show unfolds, we'll find out more about him. There's just so many characters that are that are like basically want something from the John Tavner character. And at some point, it's just amazing to me that he doesn't just like John Tavner doesn't just literally jump off a cliff because there's so much pressure building on him all the time. It's kind of crazy. And, you know, you bringing that up reminds I, I want to totally. T- John makes a lot of mistakes. John, <laughs> John should have checked the stalls. In that case, because we're going to we're going right. to find out in the next episode that by not checking the stalls, that's led to a whole bunch of other stuff he's got to deal with. Uh, sorry, spoiler. I've been kind of spoiling some things. Um, not really. Being somewhat careful. Um, he shouldn't have stabbed Dennis in the leg like Dennis was kept following him. Right. But that was impetuous. Like he should have pulled out the knife maybe and threatened him and said, listen, right. I have a knife like 
stop following me, I mean it. Or maybe just scratch him a little bit. He didn't have to go right. create a wound in his leg that one would go to the hospital for. There would have been a better way to get rid of Dennis. You know, so I actually I take that back. John makes a bunch of mistakes. I think the thing is John's not good with people. John's good at jumping. John's good at running. John's good at being brave in the face of danger. He's good at um, being strategic in a lot of ways. But his weakness is people. And he makes decisions around people that get him in more and more trouble. But my question is, and I think this is probably unanswerable, was he like that before he was tortured? Oh, that's interesting. You know, like I feel like we're looking at the broken version of him. And so that, I think, animates or or impacts a lot of his way of being in the world. Like I said, I mean, I feel I, I, I'm using the word depression, which, you know, is, is somewhat loaded in, in, in our modern era and somewhat of a catch all. But he, he seems like a person who is extremely depressed, but is just trying to get go through the motions of life. It just turns out his life is really violent and complicated. But it's like everything seems like work for him. Like he seems he he is he, he takes no joy in anything uh, other than when he's with his wife, as far as I can tell. Now mm-hmm. I might be forgetting a few scenes, but he's just he is just miserable. And yes. it's weird to watch a show where the main character is miserable the whole show. Well, he loves his family. That's why, because he's so miserable all the time. When you see that. That so rare little glimpse of a, a real smile from him, it is like the it is it means so much, right? It's just like withholding, yes. like it's like he when his brother tracks him down in Amsterdam, and he's just sitting on a porch stone somewhere on some step stone somewhere, and then his brother just walks up, you know, surprise, I'm here, I'm gonna bring you. He's his brother walks up and just says, "Hey, buddy." Want to go for a walk? And John looks up. And it's legit joy that he feels for a moment. And because he has so little joy in his life, he gets it all from his wife and his brother and his dad. Like, he he's a loyal man, I think, with a lot of love. Which is, again, what I yeah. like about the show. There's so much love in this show. It just shows up weirdly because everything shows up weirdly. So, I guess that's probably the end of this episode, which, I you know, in... in in classic TBTL fashion, I'll just I'll just say sorry. I know that was kind of meandering. I know it was kind of all over the place. I felt like we needed to try to make the case for why we like the show, and then we needed to kind of talk about the plot. I have a feeling these things will be a little bit less all over yes. the place as we go forward because what we'll have is we won't have to try to re-explain who every, char- <clears throat> who every character is, and we can just basically talk about the plot of each episode. Mm-hmm. So if you – and I again, I would highly recommend people watch the show for this to – like, I'm not saying this is great if you've watched the show, but if you haven't watched the show, this is maddening. This is literally like in the DSM somewhere as far as, as, far as like a, an indication of some sort of mental illness, uh, both what we're saying and if you've listened to this while not watching the show yeah, found it enjoyable. I think that the, today's episode was interesting because we do know that some people are listening who maybe are thinking about watching the show. And so we are trying to explain everything that happens for people who haven't seen it as well as talk to people who have probably going forward I think there will just be a lot more assumption like when we did the Game of Thrones and other things that people have seen what we're talking about and we don't have to explain everything today was just getting the ball rolling and also I just really wanted to explain why we love this show so much yeah it feels so good to be back I don't know if I (laughs) I don't know if I um, if I made a, a strong case myself but I will just say that like the 
the writing on the show is amazing. Also, the just like the um, the the way it's shot. I, I think of this one particular moment. The color. I don't know if it's color saturation. I don't know enough about um, film terminology. But like the Luxembourg. When we get to Luxembourg and we're in the part of the airport where the guy who steals the bag is having lunch, mm-hmm. the cafeteria in the Luxembourg airport is this just kind of weird greenish. Like there is a weird greenish color going on in the in the in the film or in the lighting or whatever, and it just perfectly sets the mood of like this shitty job this guy has and why he would steal this bag with ten million euros in it. It's just a quick moment. But it's like this show is full from a visual standpoint. This show is full of of little visual moments like that where they just it's it's it, I mean, this 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 show is just so good on a written level, on an acted level and on a visual level. I just love it so much. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm already thinking about all the things that are about to happen. and I'm getting excited, but we should okay, leave good. it there. Uh, we never in all of our planning for this. Oh, good. OK. Got a little That's, music this is the here. the song we're going to go out with. Sure, Mel I was going to say, we never established what our ending music is, but let's do it. Let's go out with The Velvet Fog, little Mel Torme. All right, thanks for uh, listening to this, you uh, you guys. We will be back here next week, or we're going to do uh, Season 1, Episode 2 of uh, Patriot. Thanks for listening to Macmillan Men, and um, keep it double good. <laughs> I love I it. I'm trying, love trying it. things. Agent man, they've given you a number and taken away your name.